0: Next up on the Mutual Audio Network, fiction from our future.
1: The following audio drama is rated PG 13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult
2: The Leviathan Chronicles, an audio adventure. The story thus far. After the brutal attack in Mumbai, McCallan and Tully are taken to London by Anton to find a rogue immortal known only as Harlequin. The three of them solicit Harlequin to assist them in infiltrating Nankatsu Industries. The monsters that killed Othello in Mumbai left behind a tooth filling that Sension traced back to the hidden laboratory. Harlequin is reluctant and proceeds to tell McCallan the origins of the rebel movement how an assassination attempt by Sension against Evangeline accidentally murdered thousands of immortals. Harlequin agrees to help the Rebellion, but McAllen senses he may have ulterior motives. He pressures her to align herself with him and renounce any involvement with the Immortals' civil war. She reminds him that if she does nothing, the deadly signal virus that is still traveling around the world will kill them all anyway. Meanwhile, Oberlin St. Clair still remains missing after being kidnapped by Wit Roberts. His current whereabouts are unknown. And now, Chapter 13: The Fortune Cookie. The condor streaked across the sky, high above the Shetland Islands of Scotland. The plane was nearly invisible to the naked eye. Its active photocloak system changed the colour of the condor's surface to match its surroundings, in this case, a shimmering pale blue. But even without maintaining the same colour as the sky, the condor would have been impossible to see from the ground. It was travelling at over two times the speed of sound. McAllen and Tully sat in the main cabin, familiarizing themselves with the various pieces of equipment that would be needed in their infiltration of Nankatsu Laboratories. Anton and Harlequin sat in the cockpit of the Condor, planning the quickest and most discreet route to their destination near Japan.
0: We should get high over the Barents Sea before we turn east towards Siberia. I want to stay above the Arctic Circle before we drop towards Nishinoshima. I'm setting the computer to activate afterburners before we pass over Svalbard.
1: That could be dangerous. The initial burst of afterburners is when the Condor is most vulnerable to detection. You should let me fly the plane manually as we enter Russian airspace. I
0: don't think that's a wise idea. The computer has all of the radar monitoring stations listed in its navigational database. I
1: know. But given my experience, I probably know more about their defense network than the computer.
0: Then let's just say I think the plane has a steadier hand than you.
1: I am quite aware how to fly the Condor.
0: So is the computer. Stay here and monitor communications and system function. I'll be back shortly.
1: Anton rose
2: and left the cockpit. Harlequin was furious, but he showed no evidence of it on his face. Once he was sure that he was alone, Harlequin reached inside one of his pockets and took out a small black disc about the size of a hockey puck. Holding the device in his hand, he reached far underneath his seat to where he could feel the vent that sat over one of the Condor's primary CPU clusters. The disc snapped down magnetically and Harlequin pulled his hand back quickly. Much as he tried to prevent it, a small grin crept across Harlequin's face. Anton walked back into the main cabin. McAllen and Tully were sitting on opposite sides of the floor, packing their gear into black rubber backpacks. They were going over the infiltration plan and quizzing each other.
1: Harlequin's plan shows a laser field on the third floor.
2: For that, we use the flash detonator. It fills the room with light at the same resonance frequency as the lasers, but we have to use special goggles to prevent eye damage.
0: Good. You got this.
2: What about the cameras on the inside perimeter? We
0: use photocloak shields unless we detect infrared scanners. I'm very impressed by our star pupils. Pretty soon the two of you will be able to give Harlequin a run for his money. I think I like being a cat burglar for the clothes. It certainly would be an improvement, Mr. Tully. Now, if you finish studying for your exams, I could sure use your help in the cargo hold. I want to switch out some of the fresh air tanks for the aqua scooters we'll be using when we land. They're pretty heavy.
2: Both Macallan and Tully rose.
0: Actually, just you, Mr. Tully. Macallan, would you do me a favor? Could you go up to the cockpit and watch Harlequin? I just want an eye kept on him. You know I don't trust him.
2: I got that impression. I'll be right back, Tully. Tully didn't like the idea of Harlequin being alone with McCallum, but after seeing a slight nod, he realized that this was not the time for a fight. McCallum walked to the cockpit and sat down next to Harlequin, who was typing on the keyboard next to the communication station. Oh,
1: McCallum. Did the airplane pilot invite you up to the cockpit? I'm afraid I'm all out of lapel pins, but I'm sure there's a toy plane in the back that the stewardess will give you. What were you working on? I was trying to determine what kind of fuel the Condor uses. I thought I might be able to find a place along the way to refuel.
2: Couldn't Anton just have told you- You know,
1: I knew your parents. My parents? John and Teresa Orsel. They were the youngest immortals in the world. The last ones to be made. That is... Of course, before you.
2: When did you know them?
1: About 150 years ago, when we were all still living in Leviathan. They were very talented scientists. Your grandmother, too. They wanted you to do this. What do you mean? Macallan, this is... difficult. You weren't just born for this destiny. You were bred for it, literally. Your parents didn't want a daughter. They wanted a lifeline. They needed you in case the Rebellion succeeded. They knew that gene manipulation would be the key to immortality. But
2: isn't that a giant coincidence? That I'm a genetic scientist that has been genetically created?
1: No. Don't you see? It's not a coincidence at all. Everything about you was bred intentionally. Your hair, your fingerprints, your favorite flavor of ice cream, your intellect. And yes, even the fields of study that you would be most inclined to pursue. Everything about you was planned, McAllen, Designed like ordering off a menu. What? They... Have that power, McCallum. That was the essence of the Rebellion. To reject Evangeline and instead genetically create what they needed. You, the only person that might have the ability to manipulate a Starstone, like Evangeline. You are practically her genetic twin. You are the Rebellion's queen bee. The what? Without the queen, the hive dies. Only you and Evangeline have the power to use a Starstone to renew and re energize the cells of all the other immortals. Did you ever think what might happen to you if the Rebellion discovers that their experiment failed and you can't convert a star stone? Shut up, Harlequin. How did they do it? How did they... make me? When Evangeline learned that Sension was planning to expose her to a virus that would revert her back to a normal human, she designed a device that would restore her immortal genes. This was the device you found in the cedar elm disguised as a keyhole. But the genetic work that went into designing the keyhole had ramifications far beyond Evangeline. Senshin stole the plans for this genetic manipulator and gave it to your parents. They, in turn, used it as a foundation to create the Grow Tanks in which you were created. I beg your pardon, but. Grow Tanks? Is it so hard to believe? Did you really think the Rebellion would kill off Evangeline and leave themselves with no way to perpetuate their immortality? No. That's the reason why you were created. And the person that controls you controls Leviathan.
2: I don't know what you're talking about. Nobody controls me. Nobody! <sighs> 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 Ugh, the hell was that? Charlie and Anton sprinted into the cockpit. McCallan quickly got up and let Anton sit in the pilot chair. What
1: the hell happened? Sounded like a missile got fired at us. A MiG-31 just made visual contact 20 seconds ago. Impossible!
0: We have full jamming and photocloak active. Then
1: it must have homed in on the afterburners. That or the pilot fired visually and took a blind shot at us. I told you to let me fly the damn plane, Anton! You do realize if the MiG switches to guns and knocks out our photocloak that they'll send up the whole Russian Air Force to nail us. <laughs>
0: Too late. Our left tail fin just became visible.
2: Wait, can't we just fire a missile
1: back at the MiG and take it out? The
0: Condor has no offensive capability. Then we gotta think of something. We're always open to your brilliant ideas, Mr. Tully. I have one.
1: Strap yourselves in. Anton, take the Condor off that damned autopilot and let's fly it together. Anton punched a security code into the keyboard, and with a brief
2: shudder, the smoothness of the autopilot was replaced by the slight instability of Anton and Harlequin flying the Condor manually together.
1: There's not much time. I want you to go subsonic and kill the afterburners. We need to keep dodging left and right, but let the MiG slowly gain on us.
2: He's firing! Missile away! Hang on! The Condor violently spun off to the right, twirling itself upside down twice. McAllen saw the missile streak by the windshield of the cockpit and explode 100 yards in front of them. Now, cut left.
0: The MiG is closing, now within 400 meters. That's gotta be
1: gun range. We've got to bring him in closer. What? Anton, pull up hard. Try to get us vertical. Hold on! MIG is
0: pursuing, now within 300 meters. The
1: pilot's pressure suit will need a few seconds to inflate to prevent him from blacking out. He'll be disoriented for a brief second in the climb as the blood rushes out of his head.
0: firing! I can't express how curious I am to learn what exactly you have in mind, Harlequin. This! The fuel gun! Now within 200 meters! He's gonna hit us! Now would be a good time to- Harlequin!
2: Afterburners, now! The Condor shot straight up. The MiG which had inched it so close to the Condor was now engulfed in an inferno. And as the sky became darker and Macallan could see the curvature of the Earth before her, the Condor levelled out at 150,000 feet.
1: Any sign of it? No.
0: No sign of the MiG. Then let's just say that we got lucky. Thank you, Harlequin. That was quick thinking. You saved us.
1: Well, don't thank me yet. Why not? Because that little manoeuvre just cost us 60% of fuel supply. We are dangerously low on fuel.
2: Do we have enough to make it to Nankatsu's secret laboratory?
1: The computer says we'll have enough fuel if we enter a long-range glide over Hokkaido, but that will probably eat up the last of the fuel supply. Then how exactly are we supposed to get the hell off the island that we're breaking into? Most good thieves use something called a getaway car? So eloquently put, Mr. Tully. However, good thieves also know how to improvise, don't they?
2: The Condor raced over the coast of Hokkaido at an altitude of over 125,000 feet. Just past the island, it cut its primary engines. The aircraft entered a slow glide, assisted by tiny bursts of stabilizing propulsion from the auxiliary engines. McAllen looked out the front cockpit window and was amazed by what she saw. From the aircraft's tremendous altitude, she could see almost the entire island chain of Japan. Continents had definitive shape, and she felt godlike as if she was looking at a map of the Earth as opposed to flying over it. But what really amazed her was the sound. It was quiet. There was no low rumble of jet engines as she had always mentally associated with a view this high. McAllen leaned forward to get closer to the window, to feel at one with the glide. And it made her feel utterly alive. Answers. That's what's hidden here. Answers. An hour later, the Condor gently set down in the Sea of Japan with the help of the plane's massive hover fans. After floating on the surface for only an instant, the cockpit once again retreated into the body of the aircraft as the Condor sunk 70 feet underwater and entered hydro mode. Days before, back in London, Harlequin had pieced together a blueprint of Nankatsu's laboratory. He knew the island had several radar arrays that monitored all air activity in the area The Condor would lose what little stealth profile it still possessed after the MiG attack through the process of the four team members entering and exiting the aircraft above the surface. So instead, Harlequin decided on an aquatic infiltration.
1: The majority of the installation is actually below ground. It appears to be powered by the thermic activity of the volcano that sits next to it.
0: Just like Leviathan?
1: Yes. Pretty advanced stuff. So you can imagine what their defences are like. We'll exit through the airlock and use the aqua scooters for our final approach and penetrate the facility underwater.
2: McAllen, Tully, Anton and Harlequin went to the rear of the Condor and donned black suits with built-in hoods that were made out of a material McCallan could not identify. Are these suits made of neoprene? They don't seem
1: very thick.
0: Don't worry. The water's about 45 degrees, but this suit has electric heating which should keep
1: us warm. Should. Change of plan. We'll each stay in two teams of two. But I've decided that I want McCallan with me. That's not our agreement! You said- I know what I said, the fact remains. I was reviewing the schematics during the flight over Russia, and my infiltration team has to negotiate a small ventilation crawl space to enter one of the security nerve centers. Much as you've managed to keep your girlish figure, Anton. McCallan will have an easier time getting through than either you or Tully.
0: No more games, Harlequin. This is real.
1: Of course it is. Now let's get into the airlock with the scooters and begin.
2: As Anton and Harlequin loaded the scooters into the airlock, McCallum quickly grabbed Tully and pulled him aside. Tully, listen. I know you don't get along with Anton, but please, just just keep it together out there.
1: (laughs) Is that a little concern I detect? Come on, the greatest thief of our time put together this snatch and grab. I have a lot more faith in him than I do Anton. This guy knows what he's doing. We're going to be fine.
2: Tully, be careful.
1: Hey, hey.
0: I appreciate the concern, but I'll be fine. You know me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I know you. And before Tully could think, McAllen reached behind his head and pulled his lips towards hers. That's your incentive to come back in one piece.
1: Consider
0: me, uh, incentivized. All set.
2: The four of them put on clear face masks that contained integrated communication systems so that they could speak underwater. The airlock doors shut behind them, and the chamber began to fill up with the icy water of the Pacific after everyone had equalized their ears the outer door opened and the four of them swam out into the dark water
1: Clint, what kind of mixed gas are we breathing is it trying to something far more sophisticated but the principles are the same
2: the underwater scooters resembled stripped down wave runners but longer in the front on either side of the turbine sat two large tanks that contained a mixed gas combination that would allow the team to breathe with minimal decompression. A small computer sat recessed within the body of the craft that displayed depth, temperature, and other readings to the pilot, as well as an integrated GPS display. Harlequin had already programmed the first set of coordinates into the computers.
1: All right, boys and girls. We've got about 30 miles to cover underwater to get to Nishinoshima. Once we get near the laboratory, we've got four challenges ahead of us. First is another electric sensor net. It lies about a mile off the coast. Anything that touches it gets fried. If we cut it, it triggers a massive alarm. The net starts at the surface of the water and drops down to almost 6,000 feet. Doesn't the human ribcage collapse after the first few thousand feet? We're not going to swim under it. We're going to swim through it. What do you mean? I thought you said touching it turns you into a McNugget. Well put, but that's not our plan. The island of Nishinoshima was volcanically formed, so it's like a giant upside-down ice cream cone. It gets very deep very quickly. But on its eastern side there's a narrow spine that juts out about two miles from the island where all the lava runoff has accumulated. I'm
0: sorry but I don't
1: follow. There's a point where the sensor net falls to ocean floor or this case a cliff at only 400 feet underwater. My satellite photos identified long sets of tracks on the beach of the island leading back and forth from the dunes to the ocean. What kind of tracks? Turtle tracks. What? If turtles can get access to the island to lay their eggs But just because a turtle can squeeze its body through a hole in the cliff doesn't mean we can fit our scooters through it. What makes you think
0: the hole is big enough to pass our scooters through? Because luck favours the bold. Anton.
2: Once they arrived at the underwater cliff, the team descended to 400 feet underwater. At that point, Harlequin permitted the use of lights and the team started scanning the surface of the cliff for an opening. The cliff was enormous, like a giant knife thrust outward from the island. And although it was very fine, McAllen could make out the deadly sensor net that was draped like a curtain. McAllen couldn't get over their depth. She was riding a scooter underwater in pitch black at 400 feet. It was amazing and terrifying at the same time.
0: Harlequin, I think I found something.
2: The team sped over to see Anton's light shining into a small cave. I
0: can't see the other end of it. Yes, but look at the fan coral moving back and forth at the entrance to the cave. That's current. It must be out on the other side of the sensor net. This is
2: it. Harlequin flew his scooter into the narrow cave, and came back out less than a minute later.
1: Be very careful. The cave gets very narrow in the middle. All
2: four scooters banked leftwards in unison and entered the cave one by one. Harlequin led again, followed by Anton, McCallan, and Tully bringing up the rear. Man, Harlequin wasn't kidding. The cave is tight. I've only got about a foot on all sides. It feels like it's getting narrower. It can't be. Just stay calm, McAllen. You've been diving your whole life.
1: There's nothing to be... Hey, McAllen, are you all right? Your breathing is starting to get pretty heavy.
2: I'm okay.
0: It's just... This cave is really... This
2: cave is really deep. I can't see where it starts or ends.
1: What if we get lost in here? What if we get lost in the rock underwater? It's okay, McAllen. Just breathe.
2: The scooters approached the narrowest point in the cave... And with her light, McAllen could see Harlequin riding his scooter side saddle to wiggle it through the tight opening. She could hear the plexiglass of his faceplate scrape against the rocks. Anton went next, and McAllen saw him actually get pinned between his scooter and the rock. He stood still for a moment and was finally able to maneuver himself out. McAllen went next and fought the urge to close her eyes. Here, it was not her imagination. The cave was tightening all around her, almost hugging her body in an embrace. Her thigh brushed against the rock, which made her suddenly jump, causing her head to hit hard against the roof of the cave. Finally, Tully began to make his way through, narrowly pushing his body through first, when suddenly a moray eel shot out of one of the small crevices and get sank off, its teeth into Tully's right arm. His head smashed hard and he knew he was bleeding. It's fighting again, do something! Anton reached back through the cave and stabbed the eel two inches below its head. It twitched for a moment and then fell dead and lifeless on the floor of the cave.
1: Tully, are you okay? Thing that thing got two big bites on me. I know it broke from the suit. It's probably infected. We should. What we shouldn't do is waste time. Every minute at this depth adds five more for deco. We need to hit the shoreline well before sunrise. I'm okay. Thank you, Anton. Thanks. Well, it looks like your
0: scooter didn't fare as well. The wings are smashed. She must have hit it when you were fighting with Amore. The then you'll have to double
1: up. Anton and Tully, you share one scooter. Disconnect your faceplate and attach the hose on the other scooter's auxiliary port. We're through, but we're behind schedule. From here, we split up. McAllen and I are going to the surface of the island. There's a tunnel there that leads to the primary power relay. You and Ty need to get inside the facility from the water. The schematics indicate that there's a submarine bay on the north side of the facility. You can approach it by scooter. But before you enter the bay, you must wait for the signal from McAllen and I. We are going to produce an energy spike. Won't that set off all kinds of alarms? I don't believe so. The security system is actually governed by a very sophisticated computer AI. It looks for anomalies against a base case. In other words, variations in heat, electricity, carbon dioxide. But if the general level of heat is brought up in a given chamber, the two of you would be practically invisible to the computer. If we can cause a sudden spike in volcanic activity, it will cause an electrical surge that will temporarily blind the computer because the surge will be uniform amongst all of its circuits. Since the surge is naturally caused, i.e. the volcano, our presence shouldn't be detected. Sounds good Theory. Yes, in theory. We don't have much time. You two head to the sub-bay and wait for my signal. Go, now.
2: The entrance to the sub stood at 60 feet underwater. Even though the pair had completed the required decompression to 60 feet, Tully realized that they would still have to get back to the surface pressure somewhere within the laboratory facility. Tully and Anton could see the lights of the submarine bay far off in the distance. With the little bit of ambient light that it provided, Tully felt like he was flying thousands of feet high on the scooter. The submarine bay looked like a giant metal window carved directly into the side of the cliff underwater.
0: We wait here until we hear from Harlequin. Once he blips the circuit, how much time do we have? According to him, we'll have under 90 seconds before the AI compensates for the surge and reinitializes the sensors. There's an airlock 20 meters inside that will take us inside the actual facility. My arms hurt
1: pretty bad from that deal attack, but I can probably cover 20 meters in 90 seconds.
2: Once on the shore, Macallan and Harlequin hid behind a large dune beside a utility road.
1: See that building right there? Yeah. Well, that's no building. That's the entrance to the tunnel that leads directly down into the heart of the island. It's volcanic heart. Although it will be a bit tricky getting in. Why? There's a laser field that covers most of the ground around the entrance.
2: Well, that's easy. Can't we use the flash detonator to neutralize the laser frequencies? No,
1: not for a space this large. The flash will dilute after about 15 meters. We need to come up with the alternative means of infiltration. Here, put these on.
2: Harlequin reached into his backpack and pulled out a set of gloves and something that resembled crampons that fit over the boots they were wearing. These feel heavy. They should. I don't get it. What are these? There. A large supply truck rambled over the utility road in the distance. Harlequin jumped out in behind the dunes and placed a log halfway across the road and then leapt back into the cover of the dunes. Wait. Just... Wait. The utility truck motored along until it reached the log. While there was just enough room for the truck to maneuver around the obstacle, it had come to almost a complete stop to slowly get around the log.
1: Quickly, go now.
2: The two of them sprinted in darkness. Grab my hand. He pulled her underneath the truck and affixed her hands on a flat section of the undercarriage. To her surprise, her hands stuck like glue. Now lift up your feet before she knew it, she and Harlequin were affixed like spiders underneath the utility truck, moving at 40 miles per hour towards the entrance of the tunnel. McAllen's head was only inches from one of the rear wheels that kept kicking gravel towards the side of her face. She turned away from it and saw Harlequin hanging upside down as well, grinning at her.
1: Stay quiet until we get through the tunnel.
2: The guard at the entrance checked some papers, and then waved the truck through. McAllen knew the instant they had entered the interior of the facility. The temperature rose by 20 degrees. Oh, yeah,
1: we're heading into a volcano. When I say drop, I want you to push your legs down first and then turn your hands inward to disconnect. Keep your hands at your side and roll towards me. Ready? Drop.
2: You could have told me that that was the plan. I almost got my face scraped off.
1: Hmm. We could always rebuild it and give it a completely new identity and then you wouldn't have to be bothered by any of this.
2: We have a mission. People have died. Yes,
1: yes. Over here.
2: Harlequin ran over to a grey door on the side of the tunnel that had a padlock on the doorknob. He quickly got on one knee and began picking the lock.
1: As we get further into the facility, most of the locks have electronic keypads. That's not normally a problem, but too many incorrect entries will draw the attention of the cameras and the facility's AI. But once you do your job, the entire defense network will go temporarily blind. And what exactly is my job? This a massive ventilation fan underneath here. It's venting a lot of the heat that would otherwise make this place unbearable. Is that what I'm going into? No. That is.
2: Harlequin pointed to a small rectangular duct close to the ceiling. What? I'll never fit in there. Do I look like an Olsen twin?
1: You're going to do fine.
2: I won't even be able to move. I can't- You
1: have to. You'll have this to help you.
2: Harlequin took a long rod about 15 inches long with handles on each end. In the middle of the rod were a series of four wheels. What does that do? It
1: frees you from the burden of having to move. That's what you were so worried about. Uh, Harlequin, it's just too small. It's so narrow. What if I can't breathe? Then your grandmother will die. Then you will die. Then Othello died for nothing. Stop your damn whispering and get in the fucking duct. You wanted this. I offered you a way out, but you didn't want it. You wanted to save everybody. Well, now's your chance. I hate you. I'm afraid there's no distinction in that.
2: Harlequin removed the duct plating and hoisted McAllen behind. He placed a radio receiver in her ear and gave her a small bag to keep in front of her. Her arms were extended out in front of her and she had to shimmy forward to get her legs in. Once inside, she couldn't move in any direction more than a few inches. Oh my god, Harlequin, it's so hot! There's this searing wind that's burning my eyes!
1: You're getting sulfuric wind directly off the volcano. It's going to irritate you and will be hotter than an oven. You've just got to move
2: quickly, Miguel. I'm trying, but I can't move. There's no room. It's too hot. I can't move.
1: Take it easy. It's all right. I want you to use the crawler I gave you. Turn the handle forward and hold it against the floor of the duct. Huh? It feels best to be moving forward, doesn't it? Now you're going to continue forward for another five minutes. Soon, you'll come to an access hatch that will be located directly over one of the primary thermic vents of the volcano. You need to open it and drop in the cesium grenade that you have in the pouch in front of you. It's really getting hot in here. I'm feeling dizzy. feels with me, McCallum. I feel so itchy. I can't move. I want to be- McKellen, you've got another few minutes to go got to concentrate ah. on my voice. Ah. Concentrate on my voice. Ah, you
2: yeah, guys think I see it. There's a vent coming up. It's leading downwards. There's a lot of light. Looking down, she found herself suspended 500 feet above a roaring volcano. She was practically trapped in the vent. Her eyes were burning not just from the sulfuric gas, but the intense brightness of the inferno below her. Equally amazing were the man-made struts that interlaced the volcanic vent. Catwalks and ductwork and massive drums were integrated with this violent outcropping of nature. McAllen,
1: quickly. I need you to drop the cesium grenade into the volcano. It'll arm itself on contact. Just drop it in and send the activation signal to Anton. Hurry.
2: McAllen let the grenade, which was the size of a small softball, drop from her hands and fall five hundred feet into the heart of the volcano. (sighs) McAllen pulled back her face in time, but she could smell that some of her hair had been burnt. The volcano began to rumble deeply and then grow to a shouting roar. She turned the handles of the crawler backwards and the wheels reversed direction, pushing her back the way she came, feet first. The heat was unbearable, and sweat was dripping from every pore in her body. The hot wind blowing through the duct was now a hurricane gust that forced her to close her eyes. Harlequin! Ah! Ah! <sighs> I did it! I activated the grenade! I did it. Oh my god! Oh my god, I hated that vent! It was so disgusting, so hot! Harlequin? Four menacing guards were staring back at her brandishing machine-guns. Harlequin stood behind them.
1: That's your spy, gentlemen! Seize her! Fuck!
0: There's the signal. Take a deep breath because we have to swim the rest of the way. How long a swim do you figure it is It doesn't matter. You have to make it. I'll make it. We've got about 80 seconds left. Let's move.
2: Anton and Tully swam away from the tethered scooter and entered the submarine bay of Nankatsu's laboratory. The bright lights stunned their eyes as they had been in the shadows of the ocean for hours now. Tully knew that there wasn't going to be much time for adjustment. He could feel his lungs begin to pound and they were still 25 yards away. Tully wanted to burst out of the surface and gasp for air, but he knew he couldn't risk being seen. His anxiety grew and his arm began to feel numb. They were getting close. They were almost there. Almost there.
0: Shh, control your breathing. You're being too loud. Well, I think we might have had our first bit of luck. It looks like the sub-bay is deserted. Hey, that must be the airlock door over there. Good eye. There's a ladder on the far side. We can make our way up there.
2: As Tully climbed the ladder, he looked around the submarine bay and was amazed at what he saw. He had been around submersibles all of his life, but he had never seen vehicles like this. Hanging on cranes and sitting on skids were some of the most advanced looking submarines that he had ever dreamed of. He counted at least 10 subs and maybe a dozen other ROV or robotic vehicles. He and Anton had just made it to the top of the ladder and were walking towards the airlock on... Anton shoved Tully to the ground as shots were fired towards them. These weren't security guards. These were professional soldiers and they were trained to kill. Anton reached into his black backpack and pulled out a thin gun with a narrow 12-inch barrel. We've
0: got 40 seconds, Tully. Behind
2: you. Anton unloaded two shots directly into the guard's neck.
0: Tully, give me some cover. Got it.
2: Every shot of Tully's was met with five of the guards, but Tully managed to get a close enough shot to scare the guard back into taking cover. Anton sprinted towards the airlock door. He placed a metallic square Over the keypad like we could. Anton ran back for cover while the code breaker did its job.
0: How much time? Thirty seconds left. No, I mean how long will it take that thing to break the code? Well, it depends how long the code is. Shit! What's shit? It's
2: a nine-digit
0: code. Shit! I'll get the door open. You take care of the guard. What the hell do you think I'm trying to do, asshole?
2: Only fifteen seconds remained when the guard ran out of ammo. Tully did a flying leap over the tool station where the guard had hidden and brought the butt of the pistol down hard on the temple of the guard's skull.
0: Yeah, that's how I roll. We got the code, Tully. Come on.
2: Tully quickly shot two rounds of the specialized darts into the unconscious guard's chest. Hurry!
0: Ah! (sighs) Well done, Mr. Tully. Uh,
1: uh, thanks. Uh, good job getting the door open. What were in those darts? Some sort of sleep agent?
0: No nerve toxins.
1: What? Those were death darts? Why bother with darts? Why don't you just bring a 357 and blow everybody away?
0: Because, Mr. Tully, that would be noisy, messy, indiscreet and stupid. How's your arm? Hurts. Good.
2: After 20 minutes of painful decompression, where Tully felt his ears would explode, the other side of the airlock opened, and Tully and Anton finally entered the secret Advanced Materials Laboratory of Nankatsu Industries.
0: These are photocloak shields. This will keep us hidden from the internal camera array. You should unfold the devices to body length and keep them in front of you like a shield. For someone walking head-on, you will appear to be invisible. But anybody approaching from behind will be able to see you plain as day, so be careful. What if there's a camera behind us? Then I hope you can run quickly. Great.
2: The inside of the lab facility was sparkling white and immaculately clean. The airlock seemed like a massive industrial intrusion to the clean lines that permeated the facility. Tully didn't see any door, but he noticed a camera at the far end of the corridor. Anton typed a message to Harlequin.
0: We're in. Where do we go from here? The blueprints show that the main computer banks are two levels lower down a long corridor.
2: The two of them slipped into one of the stairwells off to the side and proceeded down two flights of stairs where Anton had to use the code breaker again to open the stairwell door. Once the door was unlocked, Anton slipped a small fiber optic cable underneath the door to determine the location of the camera in the hallway. The
0: corridor is empty. Camera on the high-right wall. So we walked towards it? Exactly.
2: Anton and Tully exited the stairwell and walked towards the direction of the camera, when suddenly... I've heard Tanaka-san
0: is no longer selling our work directly to the Japanese military. Where our work is being sold is not a concern.
3: We are paid
1: well enough for our efforts.
0: You know the work we've been doing.
3: And who
1: do you think our new mystery customer could be? I've heard whispers about Chinese activity very deep. Nonsense. A Japanese company like ours would never... Quick, in the, the supply business. closet. I'm just saying that some of the support <laughs> staff... <laughs> Shit! What? Your
2: arm? In all the commotion, Tully didn't realize that his arm had started bleeding again. Outside in the corridor, there was now a trail of blood leading right to the supply closet. The two scientists were horrified by what they saw. They nodded silently to each other and began turning the door handle. You have been listening to the Leviathan Chronicles by Christoph Leputka. For more episodes and information, log on to www.leviathanchronicles.com.
3: Hello, everyone. This is Christoph, your author and creator of Leviathan Chronicles. For those of you that aren't familiar, the the storyline of Leviathan Chronicles is going to take place over 50 episodes. And those 50 are broken up into season one and season two, each being 25 episodes. So we are now midway through season one. As I've said, Leviathan Chronicles has been in development for about two years now, and there's been a, a large team that has brought it to fruition between the sound engineers, the actors, the musicians. So to be at this point where we're halfway done with our first major milestone, uh, it's just kind of exciting. We are continuing to drop new episodes and we're trying to get those out every 10 days. It's looking a little bit more these days like it's happening every two weeks. So I'm going to have to revise my, uh, my sign-off statement to uh, to I'll see you in two as opposed to I'll see you in 10. So, at the end of season one, we are going to be taking Leviathan Chronicles uh, and combining all the 25 episodes into one massive audiobook that's going to be for sale on Amazon and in iTunes. And I'm going to be cleaning up some of the audio, um, incorporating some of the comments that you guys have given me, and also adding in a couple other tangent storylines that the time really didn't permit. And that's when I'm going to really ask for your support. You guys have been amazing so far, um, but we want Leviathan to really turn the audiobook market on its ear. And while I have great aspirations to break into the written print book world, our first step is going to be really turning the audiobook world on its ear. And I think we can make an impact because usually it's the the written book first, and then they create the audiobook. But no one has really gone straight into the audiobook market, especially with with, with an audio drama. It's an opportunity to make a really huge impact. So we'll be talking more about that as we get closer, as we get kind of like in the twenties, and I can give you guys more details in terms of what the launch state of the audiobook is going to be So you may ask the question, what is taking so long, Kristoff, to get these episodes out? Uh, Like I said, I've been trying to shoot for every 10 days. It's looking more like every two weeks. And I can point to a lot of different reasons. It's because of the sound guys or because the, the music took too long or we couldn't find the right effect. No, I'm gonna actually get a little bit more political about this and blame it all on UN week. So I live across the street from the UN. What makes that kind of fun is when I take my elevator down to the lobby in the morning from my apartment, my elevator is, is probably as diverse as United Nations. There's always like a Japanese businessman, a woman in a burqa, a Hasidic Jew, um, an Indian Sikh with a turban on. And everybody, as different as we are, are all bitching about the same thing, like how long the elevator took or the fact that the shower pressure sucks in, in our building. And it's kind of fun that, that, you know, as different as we all are, we're all kind of commonly united. The, the downside of all this diversity is I have to walk to work by the United Nations. For those of you that don't live in New York or don't know what it is, UN week is when you have all of the world leaders coming in to New York, giving speeches at the United Nations, the presidents there, the vice presidents there, all the candidates and and all the world leaders, and everything within a 10 block radius of the UN gets shut down. What happens is the streets are blocked off, uh, there's security everywhere, and things are generally a little bit more crowded, so it takes a little longer to maneuver. But they've actually gone even further than that. The president typically stays in a hotel called the Waldorf Astoria, a very nice hotel on 49th and Park. And for those of you that don't know New York, within certainly the Midtown area, New York is set up very geometrically. All the blocks are big squares and rectangles. All the streets kind of come in straight lines and right angles. I was walking to work and you could see these giant gates that they set up on the corners of, of the streets. And I'm walking out. There's a cop there. He stops me like, sorry, you can't cross the street right now. We're waiting for the president's motorcade to come through. And this is kind of a pain in the ass because I was late for work and I had a lot of things I wanted to get done. And I was like, you know what? fine. I'm just going to go walk around the block and I'll find another street. Another cop stops me and says, no, you can't leave the corner. So I can't go forward. I can't go back. I'm trapped like an animal. As I'm waiting, more and more people are coming to the corner and they're getting trapped too. So putting a bunch of New Yorkers trapped on a street corner, unable to exit or escape is like throwing pop rocks into Coke everybody's getting more upset. Everybody's like getting cranky and fussy. And what's funny is we're waiting for the president to come by. And at this point, there's a couple homeless guys that get in there. When the president finally comes by, and if you've never seen the president, by the way, he comes in a big limousine with flags on the front. And there's something very undignified about it. I actually thought it looked vaguely like a Latin American dictator, like an El Presidente kind of limousine. I thought we had something more discreet. But there actually are flags on it. And he drives by. And the funny thing was the homeless guys started like using this as like an opportunity to do like stand-up comedy. And one held up a sign going, President Bush, can you help me bail out my hedge fund? And the other homeless guy was like shouting out, can you help me get my boat out of dry dock? Now, I just thought this was hilarious that, that here we are, all these cranky New Yorkers and the ones that are like taking the piss out of the situation were, were these homeless people. But it was getting me more and more late for work. And as a result, I've been late for everything for the past two weeks. And I don't know if it's a domino effect or what it is, but this is kind of what's driving Christoph crazy and making me late for stuff. So is this the reason why the episodes are a little bit late? I'll let you do the math, but I'm just giving you a little bit of insight into what makes me tick. So. Every week I try and talk about some of the other podcasts that I've been listening to, and one that I've really, really been impressed by is something called The Byron Chronicles, and and I mentioned that in one of my previous podcasts, and I discovered that on Echo Fiction. Echo Fiction, again, is a new website, a new portal that's been created by Xander Davis where they really showcase a lot of premium new audio drama. The Byron Chronicles is actually something produced by a terrific group called Darker Projects. And the author and director of the Byron Chronicles is a gentleman named Eric Busby and and his work is phenomenal. He's done several other audio dramas and each one is better than the next. The guy is so talented. The Byron Chronicles is really a close brother of the Leviathan Chronicles because it deals with the lead character, Byron, being an immortal. So... Immediately, I was drawn to this. It's got a wonderful sense of atmosphere. The acting is so good. And it's got this great kind of goth, mysterious feel. I'm going to play a promo for The Byron Chronicles. But I really encourage you guys to go to the website. And that is www.darkerprojects.com slash thebyronchronicles.php. And Byron is spelled B-Y-R-O-N. And I'm going to have the link in the show notes. But without any further ado, this is a trailer to the Byron Chronicles.
1: Imagine if the world as you know it was nothing more than an illusion. What if creatures like elves, dragons, vampires, zombies, and werewolves walk amongst you every day, but you never see them? This is the world I walk in. I am called Byron. Byron. And these are my chronicles.
3: All right, that was the Byron Chronicles. Definitely check that out at darkerprojects.com. Now, before I go, two more things that I wanted to talk about. The first is that I've made some modifications onto the Leviathan Chronicles website. That's www.leviathanchronicles.com. And on there in the the front page, there's a little box called tell a friend. We modify that now to accept multiple email addresses. So if you put a large data dump of email addresses in there, they're going to get a short message describing Leviathan Chronicles and actually the audio file, which is the trailer, the promo to Leviathan Chronicles. So this is a great way, an easy way to spread the word about Leviathan Chronicles. I'm asking everybody to just put as many email addresses in there as you think are appropriate, as many people as you think might be interested, and you hit one button, send, it goes out to everybody and it gives them a chance without having to do anything other than open the email to actually listen to the Leviathan Chronicles and get a sense of kind of what we're all about because I think hearing is believing. And the last thing before I go is kind of a fun personal note. Samantha Turville, our beautiful, wonderful, incredibly talented narrator, is getting married this week. She's marrying an awesome guy named Brian Parker. And I would love you guys to all give her a shout out. Tell her how awesome she is. What a great job she does in bringing the Leviathan Chronicles to life. You can find her on Facebook. It's Samantha Turville, T-U-R-V-I-L-L. You can also email her on our website. But give her a shout out. Tell her congratulations for getting married. Tell her what a great job she does on the Leviathan Chronicles and make her day. She deserves it and she's awesome. Anyway, that's all I've got for this week. Chapter 14 will be coming soon. I want to thank you all so much for being fans of Leviathan. It means so much to hear your emails, posting on the forum. It it means the world to me. Chapter 14 is coming soon, and I will see you guys in two.
1: not understand advertising do you get your
3: merchandise today with the official cowlet design created by jeff music buying lots of them would bring music to my ears oh stop